Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the brand new book, Dear By Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are Black, Mask, and Bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi-plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Whenever I hold the microphone like this, I get really intrusive thoughts about singing The Bodyguard, which I (laughs) will not do. For the third week in a row. <laughs> I will not. I am not. Do this it. is me queen of the night. fighting I am the, the intrusive of the night. thoughts do and it, winning. Do it. Ow, the trigger. Ow, the trigger. Oh, deep reaction. Because I'm the queen of the night. Queen of the night. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. When he rushes the stage and she gets carried off, I that metallic suit the bob, the lip, the styling, you guys. We're focusing. I'm focusing. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a group of experts who are freaking brilliant uh, to learn all about something that makes me curious. Back in May, I had the literal pleasure of my fucking career to interview Professor Melissa Murray about the end of the Supreme Court term. Now she's back with her friends, their very special guest, to tell us all about what's going on with the nation's highest court, what we can expect for next year. You know, SCOTUS always makes me very curious. So welcome back, Melissa Murray, Leah Littman, and Kate Shaw, who are all three constitutional law professors giving me Destiny's Child of Literal Scholar fucking legal constitutional fucking law. Uh, And they're also the co-hosts of Crooked Media's podcast, Strict Scrutiny. But unlike Destiny's Child, they are never breaking up. And they are literally all co-equals who are slaying the fucking game. How are you guys? We're so happy to be here. We are great, Jonathan. So happy to be here. Very excited to be tagging along as Melissa's less fashionable, less cool friend. I gotta say... Leah, though, I'm obsessed with your fucking collarbone length haircut. I fucking love it. And I mean, I thought that like, I was like, is Kate 
Middleton here? Like, is the princess of literal... Well, I mean, like, like everyone's so fucking gorgeous here. It's like, is it like a rule to be gorgeous and like be a host at your podcasting place? Like, what's going on? I have to be honest with you guys. We just did our like Ask JVN segments, which is like my new like after dark, highly sexually charged, like it's giving talk sex with Sue Johansson, like question and answer, like relationship advice. So my brain's been more there for the last hour. So I have to like pull it back because now we're going into like SCOTUS. Or don't. Or, 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 or lean in. Maybe all of getting curious just needs to be like more high velocity slut. You're right. Why am I leaving parts of my personality at the door? You are so right, Melissa. You should be super slutty and you should let a billionaire come put you on a private jet and take you on vacation. That's the energy. My body is so ready for Clarence Thomas's like hold on luxury gifts. Like he really... Really, can that be how we start this episode? I don't think my mouth has ever made such a sentence. And even forming it was weird. It came out like marbles. And I love uh, that you called him Clarence instead of Clarence because he's definitely not shopping the Clarence rack anymore. He is like, he's not Clarence Thomas. He's like full luxury Thomas. (laughs) Can you imagine like him and Jenny walking into your store? Like to do some shopping? Like a TJ like, Maxx, absolutely not. A guilt group, yes, 100%. With someone else's credit card, <laughs> yes, 100%. Also, that fucking goddamn fucking other fucker was like, there is nothing in the Constitution that says that we can be... Sam, Sam Alito. Alito. But then, but then our other girl who we love was like, actually, it does. Rude. Like at her probably highly paid for symposium. She, <laughs> Elena Kagan. Yeah, Kagan. Yeah. She probably got like three fifty for being there. But I, you know, God love her. They're all, you know, on their speaking circuits. Good for them. Just not disclosing shit. Getting super. I mean, yeah. she does disclose because she disclosed that she received a like a locks platter from her high school friends, and she had to refuse it. And you know, if you know about Russ and Daughters in New York City, like you don't refuse a Russ and Daughters locks platter, but she did. And I say ethics. To that. Wow. And how dare me I know. that I like literally like everybody's corrupted them. Like I literally sounded like such a Republican. I'm so ashamed. I'm sorry. I do come from like a place that voted for Trump three to one and those roots are still in me and I have to unlearn it every day. There's a nightmare there. So, wow. So really like it's giving me like good progressive vibes. Like all of our girls and boys are just doing good. Like all the progressive ones are like not corrupt. Just girls. It's just the girls. Yeah. Cause once that Stephen Breyer left, honey, he cause he was, progress- he was the Allen of the court. He, he was the Allen to their Barbie. Oh my God. He was, <laughs> but I love our girls. What's, but what's going on with him and Jenny? Like new revelations. Are they going to get regulated? Probably not. <sighs> well, I mean, The TLDR is that he seems to have a bunch of billionaire friends, and it is true, it is not unconstitutional to have friends, but when your friends give you a lot of free things, including vacations, rides on their private jets, host you at their resort-like homes, you really should disclose it, especially if some of these friends have business before the court and, you know, it's been noted by some conservative pundits that not everyone here has an actual case before the court. But I think it's fair to say that among this sort of conservative milieu, they're all really interested in the same core set of issues. So even if they don't have a specific case before the court, they're deeply, deeply interested and maybe even invested in a particular set of issues, whether it's deregulation or affirmative action or whatever else. And there's Justice Thomas in the middle of this, apparently, you know, 
hanging out with his billionaire friends and living a billionaire life on a justice's salary. Because if Kagan or Sotomayor or Kentonji Brown-Jackson got caught on a private plane of a, like, billionaire who had cases... Well, forget forget the current ones, Jonathan. Like, imagine if Thurgood Marshall, who in 1967 was in the seat that Clarence Thomas now occupies, if the first African-American to serve on the court had done any of this, there would have been bipartisan calls for him to resign from the court. And if he was unwilling to resign of his own accord, I am confident there would have been calls to impeach him. And so the fact that there isn't bipartisan outrage over this is just unbelievable. Because these ethics violations are really huge. And also, I think that's part of why I thought, oh, maybe everyone's doing it. And that's why the Democrats are being quieter, because they don't want to, like, bring to light that some of the ones on the left are doing this. That's actually, like, what I really did think. Mm. So is that just not what the disclosures bear out? Like, why isn't there more outrage around this? I I mean, and let me say a couple things. One, I mean, there are definitely many conservative commentators who have tried to suggest everyone does this. Breyer and Ginsburg both accepted paid vacations. The thing is, we know that they did that because they disclosed it. So with Thomas, I think there are two distinct problems. One is just kind of the volume problem. Well, there's actually many distinct problems, but just to name a couple, you know, the most recent round of ProPublica reporting was like 38 destination vacations, 26 private jet flights, eight additional helicopter flights, like VIP 26 private plane flights? And that's, I think, in addition to the already reported, these are 26 new ones they found. Okay, but even if you're going like Houston to Austin, that's like 15 or $20,000, 10, 8,500, like a lot. So lowest- This is millions, millions and millions of dollars. That's millions of dollars of gifts. Yeah, yeah. And none of them disclosed. So those are distinct problems. I would throw in another problem, which is that these relationships, at least in this ProPublica story, all seem to be relationships with people he became friends with after he was a justice. Like, if he had existing friends who happened to be billionaires and he vacationed with them, I think you still need to disclose that, but I also think it's different. These are all people with whom he forged these relationships, coincidentally, I guess, after he was already on the Supreme Court. He met them through these conservative legal circles, through this Horatio Alger Association, through other conservative think tank speaking engagements. So the kind of corruption. Why aren't Democrats running on that? They don't have the fight in them about this. They do not. And I agree, it's a huge problem. I mean, I think there are a couple of things. You know, it's gross. Uh, the optics of it are terrible. And I think the Democrats should be making more of this. They should be making hay of it. But I also think it goes to this sort of conservative playbook with judges. And the conservative playbook over the last 20 years has been basically to appoint younger and younger judges to the point where, you know, fetuses might actually serve on our courts at some point. You know, when you appoint someone at the age of 30 to the federal bench, they're never going to get their opportunity to really make money as a lawyer. Your prime earning years as a lawyer are usually between 40 and 50 if you're in private practice. And so if you're someone who's slogging it out in government service like Clarence Thomas did, he only had one stint in private practice working for Monsanto, and he never really made a lot of money, but he talked about how he very much wanted to make a lot of money. But when you're appointed to the court that early, and I mean, he was in his 40s when he was appointed to the Supreme Court, you just don't get that opportunity. And if you have the appetite for wealth, the only real avenue for living that life is going to be through these sinecures from billionaires. And, you know, I I think you've got to kind of think about, you know, maybe part of the problem here 
is the way in which the conservatives have really insisted on nominating younger and younger people with an eye toward keeping them on the courts for a long time. But also maybe the flip side of that is they're unusually susceptible to this kind of entreaty because they just aren't in a position to amass wealth in a long-term way. And that may be especially problematic for people who are never in a position to have intergenerational wealth. What are like, other than getting to take lavish trips and not disclose them, what are like Supreme Court justice perks? Like, do they get like lifetime secret service? Do they get like, what's like their salary? Like if they get, like, do they get some bomb ass healthcare? Like, do like, is there like a Camp David for each one of them? Like, do we even know what the perks, like, what do you get? Yeah, I, I mean, there are some there there's some sort of like weird intangibles. The salary is like two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year. It's you know like it's obviously a very comfortable salary, but it's not a billionaire salary. And the chief makes a little bit more, but they get like here's one. They have these beautiful chambers inside the Supreme Court, and at least by custom, they can like borrow any piece of art from the Smithsonian or any of the like federal museums in or partly federal museums in DC to like hang on their walls. They do have a security detail. They have a driver basically anywhere they want. Some of them traditionally have, and some of them have not used the driver. They can go, they spend their vacations typically being invited. This is all of them. This isn't just like Thomas being invited to Europe to do these kind of cushy sort of sinecures, sometimes sponsored by U.S. law schools, sometimes sponsored by European universities. And they will get paid for that, right? Like nothing bars them from collecting speaking fees or doing books or... There is a cap on their outside payment for everything but books. So books are the big exception. So they've done these book deals like in the millions in recent years. And that's, you know, Sotomayor and Jackson in addition to Barrett. And I don't know if anybody else has like been in the millions in their book deals. Thomas had a memoir, but I don't remember how much he made for it. Not that much, I don't think. So I think that's in some ways to kind of Melissa's point that those of them for whom a lot of material wealth was a real objective, like are limited in their ability to realize that objective, even though they do have plenty of perks. Not that it's exonerating, but that I think is one potential psychological explanation for why at least Thomas and maybe others, we don't know, although I'm pretty sure the girls are clean, but have been so receptive to these kinds of overtures. But they don't get like a lifetime residence or anything that we like know of. They have their salaries for life. So even if they retire, they still get their 275 a year forever? Certainly like lower courts when they hit the rule of 80. I think that's right about the Supreme Court. Yeah, they, yeah. You're going to be totally comfortable. You're going to have great health care. You know, you'll go to Walter Reed to get your mammogram or whatever. Like it's, you know, it's a pretty cush life. It's not a billionaire's life though. No, but it's also like, you know, they hear cases three days a week, two weeks a month, seven or eight months a year. They work like actually hear cases six hours, 12 hours a month. I mean, like it's, and then their whole four months of summer is off. They have clerks who help them a great deal. So like there are, there are perks, but you know, but they're just not private jet type perks. Right. But apparently they are. Wow. You make your own perks and that's the private jet perks. So in light of the new ProPublica reporting, like, is there going to be an impact on the Supreme Court? Like, I know, like, Dick Durbin, I think, Senator from Illinois, there were some senators that were talking about, like, Supreme Court reform. Doesn't seem like it's a top priority that anyone's really talking about or running on. But, like, do we see these disclosures as having a potential to impact oversight of the Supreme Court? I don't think, like, a direct impact. We're already seeing their effect as far as plummeting public approval ratings when people look at this and it's 
gross and distasteful. But, you know, we have a divided Congress right now where Democrats control the Senate, but not the House. And Republicans have made very clear they have zero interest in any sort of oversight or ethics reform regarding the court. And so, you know, the Senate has a markup on some of Senator Whitehouse's legislation that would actually impose some ethical constraints on the court. But I don't see that getting past the other House of Congress, at least not in the short term. But then couldn't that law just be challenged then the Supreme Court itself could like rule against that it? That too, because of course, Justice Alito, as you noted, said he doesn't think Congress can actually regulate the Supreme Court, notwithstanding the text of the Constitution itself, which literally has a thing called the Exceptions and Regulations Clause, giving Congress the authority to constrain the kinds of cases that the court hears. And Congress has a ton of authority over the courts and it's exercised it over the last 200 years. But yeah, there's a very real chance that this court will say, actually, we think it's our constitutional right to be insulated from any measure of accountability and to lead this baller life, you know, no consequences whatsoever. Have any other justices been dragged into this? Has anyone else's undisclosed things trickled out? Sam Alito. Okay. It's just the greatest story ever. So this guy literally took a private plane (laughs) jet trip to Alaska for a fishing trip. There's a big picture of him grinning like a shit-eating fool, holding a big salmon with his friends. He basically talked about this with the Wall Street Journal before the piece ever came out. And he said, look, there were reports that maybe we drank a $1,000 wine. I don't remember. It certainly didn't taste like $1,000 bottle wine. And so, yeah, he was dragged into this. And he took a flight trip with a guy who actually did have a case before the Supreme Court, whose financial interests were at stake. YOLO. And if that came out about a justice appointed by a Democrat... Don't we think that Republicans would absolutely come unglued? I mean, Uh they came unglued when there were reports that Senator Chuck Schumer was having lunch with Justice Sotomayor. Those reports were false. He was having lunch with his wife. With his wife, who has a similar haircut. (laughs) Exactly. But they came unglued then. They came unglued about Justice Sotomayor and her book tours where her assistant was like, are you sure you have enough books for all the people who are coming to this? They might be disappointed if they can't get a book. I mean, like they were making hay of that. Like, you know, she's on these book tours, just milking people for their money. I mean, it's everything they say is just projection and deflection from what they're actually doing, which is this is bonkers. Like, I mean, this is actually bonkers. And the only person I think on the conservative side who I think understands how horrible this looks is probably the chief justice who I think wants no part of this and really laments the fact that this is happening. And every five minutes, it seems the court is being dragged into the pages of ProPublica again. Because John Roberts is the chief justice, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was Bush II's first judge. Yes, he was supposed to take the seat that Sandra Day O'Connor vacated. But in the run-up to his confirmation, William Rehnquist, who was the chief justice and for whom Roberts clerked, passed away unexpectedly from thyroid cancer. And George W. Bush slotted John Roberts into the chief justice slot. And that made room for Samuel Alito to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. That's how that happened. Sam thinks he should have been named chief. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was 
fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Sidebar, just diving right back in because Melissa, honey, the last time we saw each other, we were on the precipice of some rulings and... Everything I said was going to happen, happened. Except the one that I thought about so much for you was we were really scared about voting rights and they did give us, weren't they like, we aren't saying no forever, but like on a technicality, like we are like siding with, but then, but then they went back and made like a equally as racist congressional map that they like just submitted like yesterday in real life. Right. So it's. I don't think they should get credit for Allen versus Milligan. You're right. They did a good job on that. But that was after they did a bad job allowing those maps to go into effect for the midterm election anyway, which may or may not have given control of the House of Representatives to the GOP. So I'm glad they got there. I wish they'd gotten there back in February of 2022, not in June of 2023. But yes, that was a good one for SCOTA. So cookie for them. Well, and also like they did a good thing in that five of them said the Voting Rights Act's prohibition on drawing districts to dilute the voting power of racial minorities, that can stay for the time being, but only five of them said that. And you had these four horsemen of the apocalypse be like, let's just blow up the other part of the Voting Rights Act now. And that's part of what I think is driving what you were alluding to, Jonathan, Alabama coming back and be like, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. We know we have at least four votes to do whatever the F we want in drawing districts to make our congressional map not representative. And they are just testing to see whether they can get Brett Kavanaugh to do what he suggested. He was curious or open to doing in his separate writing, maybe kill the Voting Rights Act down the road. Oh, and so let's get into that a little bit more. So what did Brett Kavanaugh say in that like separate opinion in Allen? 
like that he was curious. So he cast the fifth vote to join the opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by all the Democratic appointees that basically said the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, still means something. These maps drawn by the Alabama legislature were impermissible under the Voting Rights Act. But yes, in this sneaky separate writing, Kavanaugh basically said, I agree that under existing case law that the maps that Alabama legislature drew are unlawful. And we haven't really been even presented with the argument that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the part at issue, may have once been necessary and constitutionally permissible, but has become unconstitutional. Alabama didn't really make that argument, so we don't really have to pass on that argument. But I don't know, maybe we should think about it down the road. So he basically left the door open to the argument that the entire Voting Rights Act, what remains of it, is unconstitutional. And Alabama has taken up that invitation in its, both the way the legislature has returned to the task of drawing maps, it basically drew a map that didn't do anything different than the originally unlawful map. And it is arguing in its briefs in the litigation that is now pending that, you know, it's basically doing the thing that Kavanaugh invited it to do, which is to argue that the entire Voting Rights Act, again, what what remains of it, is unconstitutional. And we just don't know what Kavanaugh will say when the argument is really presented to him. So basically now Alabama has redrawn the maps and they're making in this litigation because the maps were challenged, but they're saying, hey, it's evolved, it's unconstitutional, we don't need these anymore. Like you're impeding our right as like a state to make our own maps. Is that what they're saying in the new litigation? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. And and then there's the additional like, hey, we saw your decision back in June and we say F you to that. Like, I mean, there's just outright defiance as well. Because they think that the four definitely support them. And they if they can just pick off Kavanaugh with a different argument, then they're going to get that basically. same decision reversed because they know that this court's really open to reversing big decisions. Yeah, basically. I mean, because if you look at, you know, the cases from the previous term, they know that basically defying progressive precedents and cases like Roe versus Wade, you know, you reward them in Dobbs when you say, let's overrule this case. I'm going to change my argument midstream. Or, right, they're just like they don't do anything when states defy them, like in the Texas SBA case where the court just allowed Texas to nullify Roe, you know, before they outright overrule it. And so, of course, Alabama is going to try again, right, because there's no cost to them doing so when you have a court that's willing to go along with this lawlessness. And also, like... That's like taxpayer money that like spends, that pays the lawyers, right? To like make that case and like appeal it and stuff. Like, right? I hate it here sometimes. The good people of Alabama are paying for a lot of litigation. But not getting a lot of representation. Yeah, and that fucking Tuberville. Ah, he's such a conservative that I'm not even like, just so disgusting. I hate him in every single way. I'm just saying I hate him so much. It makes my skin crawl. And I know everyone agrees. And I miss that Doug Jones. Where is where is that Doug Jones? You remember that nice Doug Jones? I was on a plane when he won. I and I was like, Aww. oh my God, I can't believe he's going to win. And then he lost. And like, where is that poor Doug Jones? Anyway, that wasn't a question. Well, he was hanging out at the White House last year, helping Ketanji Brown Jackson <gasps> become a justice yep. of the court. So he's been busy and doing good things. Okay, love that. Maybe he'll become an ambassador or something. Ah. Anyway, because this litigation was already happening, is it could it be fast enough that the new Alabama maps could make it onto like the next roster for next year? The court's docket for next year? 
like a challenge to the new Alabama maps? Yeah. So I think, yes, particularly if they go via the shadow docket, which is how they went last time, because last time, you know, the plaintiffs challenged the maps super quickly and the district court also very quickly concluded these maps are obviously illegal. You know, these maps don't comply with the Supreme Court's order in this case. So in addition to being obviously illegal, they are in defiance of the Supreme Court ruling. I don't think it will take that long to determine that. And then it is quite possible that Alabama will once again run off to the Supreme Court and ask them to allow Alabama to use the illegal maps while the case remains ongoing. Mm. And the term shadow docket that Leah refers to um, is just a distinction from the court's regular docket, which we call the merits docket. Those are the cases the court hears oral arguments on, they get briefing on, and then they write decisions. And, you know, we get to read the sort of way that they decided and the reasoning behind their decisions. On the shadow docket, the court's basically handling emergency appeals, a lot of death penalty cases, but also these kinds of procedural motions that need to happen very quickly. And so there's usually not oral arguments. So there's not a public argument about these cases. And typically when they resolve these issues on the shadow docket, there isn't any decision, like any written decision. So you don't even really know which way the justices voted unless justices register their dissents from orders on the shadow docket. So it's all not very transparent. And more recently, the court has been using the shadow docket to actually do more substantive as opposed to procedural things. Haven't I read about, like, attempts for, like, shadow docket reform? Like, has someone been talking about that? I feel like I've read about that. Our friend Steve Vladek talks a lot about it. He's written a book. Should we plug his book? It's called The Shadow Docket. (laughs) Easy to remember. Hey, you were going to say something about The Shadow Docket. Well, yeah, I mean, look, there are a lot of different types of Supreme Court reform that we would love to see come to fruition. But among them is the court just does an increasing amount of really high stakes work completely out of public view and without adhering to the ordinary requirements. Like judges are supposed to hear arguments and give reasons when they decide cases. Like those are the kind of core fundamental features of judging. Like, you know, actually members of Congress don't even really have to say why they're voting in a particular way, like on a piece of legislation. But like, it's something that has always been a feature of judging our system is like they tell us why they're calling the winners and the losers the way they are but that is often completely absent from shadow docket cases like literally they will either you know put a map back into effect or put a lower court ruling finding something unconstitutional or unlawful on statutory grounds on hold and sometimes they don't even bother to tell us why and it's lawless like there's no other word for it and so requiring the giving of reasons, requiring them to set expedited hearings so they actually hear arguments and, you know, there's some sunlight that shines on their proceedings. Like these are, you know, a couple of the proposals that have been floated, but public attention, I think that Steve says this and we we say it too, public attention is actually critical. And for a long time, the court just operated in the shadows and Often, apart from the impacted parties, the broader public wasn't even aware of what they were doing. And that, I think, has changed for the better. But they're still doing far too much that is far too consequential on the shadow docket. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon. And neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like 
a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys's room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, but I should stop paying for me time with whatever credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offer 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Sign me up. Room upgrades? Yes, please. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Melissa, do you know off the top of your head how many cases in the term that we spoke about in 2023 are on that last merits docket? How many do they take in like a given session? This is a lot of math, Jonathan, um, but... You should know that the Supreme Court's docket, its merits docket, is entirely discretionary. They don't have to take everything that comes before them. And more often, litigants will file petitions of certiorari to the court, asking the court to grant review. And so they have a lot of discretion. Um, they typically take roughly like somewhere between 70 and 80 cases, although it's been a marked decrease in the last 10 years in the number of cases that they take per, per term. So... It's not like they're overwhelmed with cases, but, you know, the cases that they select typically tend to be those that are very consequential, cases where there may be a split between two different federal circuits on a particular issue of law, issues of first impression that need to be resolved. But in the last couple of years, now that the court has had its conservative supermajority of six, since you only need four justices to grant certiorari and you only need five justices to actually make a decision... The conservatives have a lot more room in determining what kinds of cases the court will take. So over the last 10 years, for example, when there was just a five to four majority and the conservatives weren't always really sure where their fifth vote might come from, they had to be really careful about what cases they took because they couldn't be sure they would always get five to rule the way that they wanted to. And so, you know, a lot of Second Amendment cases didn't get granted cert. And, you know, Justice Thomas would always register his objection to those denials from certiorari. But now that they have a six to three conservative supermajority, they're pretty sure they usually will have five votes to rule the way that they want to. And so now we're seeing them pick up cases that I think aren't necessarily ready to be decided by the court. And, and a great example of that from last term was 303 Creative versus Elenis, which was that case about the website designer who did not want to provide websites for same-sex weddings. That 
that was a pretty hypothetical dispute. She hadn't actually been approached to create a website for any same-sex couple. So, you know, the facts weren't necessarily as robust as they might be in a case that's before the court. But, you know, you had four people who definitely wanted to hear it and believed rightly that they had five votes to decide it. And so they took that case. I did see some people online. I got into it with a few people on Instagram because there was this one gay who was like, what's wrong? Like, I don't want someone making my wedding cake if they don't believe in gay stuff. Like, just go to someone who does believe in gay stuff. And then I was like, but Queen, like, where does, like, creativity end? Like, what if there's, like, a cook or a chef at a restaurant that's like, well, I'm using my creativity on, like, how to get the best burgers or whatever the fuck, and I don't believe in sustaining gay relationships, so I don't want to feed gays because that's, like, alternative. Like, where do we end creativity? And so I was like, that's my issue, is that, like, they've just opened this huge fucking Pandora's box of, like, at what point is it discrimination? And so then there was these other like lawyers in the thread who were like, ooh, I really like how you interpret law. And I was like, thank you, legally blonde. It's like, maybe we're thing. Like, what, like it's like, hard? It's a lawyer. <laughs> it's a lawyer. Yeah, you know. But there was other people who were like echoing that sentiment. So as three constitutional scholars, everyone, I want your takes on this. What do you think about that ruling? Obviously, I don't think we were surprised, but what does this open up for us now? I feel like your interpretation is the right one um, because it's not clear what the limiting principle to this ruling is. You know, in the immediate aftermath, we've already seen other service providers like hairdressers and whatnot say, well, I'm an artist, I'm creative, and therefore I can decline to provide services as well. And we've seen, you know, anti-LGBT litigation groups rely on the decision to justify firing, right, like a gay substitute teacher because, you know, instructing children, you know, involves some creativity and expression. And basically every aspect of modern commercial and social life involves some expression and creativity. Is it possible that the Supreme Court will later on down the road limit the decision? Sure. But in the interim, it will inflict all of this harm and uncertainty on individuals until that's worked out. And also normalizing discrimination and differentiation isn't good, right? That has bad consequences, even if you attempt to cabinet off and limit it later down the road. Kate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly cannot improve much on the way that you described your discussion. It's potentially just kind of infinite in its application in terms of how much it will erode now pretty settled expectations of a degree of at least not overt discrimination on the basis of characteristics like sex, race, sexual orientation, religion, you know, in theory, at least, partly because, as Melissa was saying, this was a hypothetical case without any factual development. So when the court says things like, well, website design is an expressive activity because she, this would-be website designer, said, well, I'm going to sit down and make a custom website with each couple. And so my expression is going to be all over the product. Like, I don't know. I'm not even really sure that's how like website design for like wedding websites works. But we just don't know because there was no actual facts in the case. It was all these abstractions at Neil Gorsuch was offering. And so, but I think you're right in terms of kind of food provision. So you you have people for sure who were defending the opinion and basically saying, well, expressive activity like this can be cordoned off from the provision of ordinary goods and services on the commercial marketplace. But I'm just not sure that logic holds. Like, just as you said, like people who provide, who make food, like the predecessor case, Masterpiece Cake Shop, like involved baking a wedding cake that wasn't decided on the merits the way this case was. But certainly you had a baker there who said, my cakes are artistic, expressive creations. And maybe you could draw a line between like a 
custom wedding cake and like a sandwich that you buy like at a deli. But I don't know, like people may be able to argue that like custom sandwiches are creations. And to the kind of, I think, very profound point you made, if you have somebody who runs this deli who literally says, I don't want to provide sustenance to this gay couple that walked in because I fundamentally disagree with their lives. Like I fundamentally find them illegitimate, right? Or fake as Lori Smith, right, was the website designer who basically said, I believe that same-sex marriages are false. That was the term that she used. That's the same position that Smith was making in defending her right to refuse service. So I'm just not sure if sandwiches are actually different. And if they're not, that literally means that you could be discriminated against in attempting to secure literal sustenance to live. And the Supreme Court just enabled that. Melissa, darling. So... Two points. You know, we've been thinking about Obergefell a lot since Dobbs happened because Obergefell and Dobbs sort of rest on the same kind of fragile foundation. And I think there's probably no appetite among the conservatives to attack Obergefell directly right now, but this is a sort of backdoor way of doing that. If you make it difficult for same-sex couples to exist in public life, to get services, to be treated fairly, then you're normalizing the expectation of discrimination and normalizing the fact that it's okay to discriminate against same-sex couples. So there's that. The other thing I think that's worth talking about that you know I, I think not everyone has focused on is these objections to same-sex marriage, these religious exceptions, are the same kind of objections that people launched against interracial marriages in the 1960s and 1970s. And there's a whole body of Supreme Court precedent that says, yeah, you can have religious beliefs, but you can't use them in ways that implicate other people's civil rights. And one of the things I think is happening with these cases, like 303 Creative and Masterpiece Cake Shop, is we are beginning to see the prospect of discrimination against LGBTQ persons being hived off from the discrimination that we rightly view as abhorrent against racial minorities. And there's a distinction that's being drawn that makes racial discrimination really problematic and discrimination against sexual minorities as maybe not so problematic at all. And I think that's a really big problem that they're beginning to set up. And it's one that can be used to divide these communities that really should be banding together in the face of all of these conservative assaults. I wrote down legacy admissions because I wanted to ask about legacy admissions and how we think if that's going to like make its way quickly to the Supreme Court. Because what was that case called? The one about affirmative action? Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. They were consolidated for argument and decision. Which were groups of like Republican white kids or no? Yes. No. Well, and Asian American students as well, but recruited by a white guy who is like a cause guy who has been trying to dismantle race consciousness and education and everywhere else for His name is Edward Bloom. Name names. Mm. He's the villain He was involved in the case that blew up the other part Mm -hmm. of the Voting Rights Act, Mm -hmm. Shelby County versus Holder. He's he's got lots of tentacles. That was the 2013 one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, is there a challenge already working its way up about legacy admissions? Because, like, what a glaring thing. So there isn't a challenge working its way up to the Supreme Court. There is a group that has filed a complaint, and now the Biden administration has also filed a complaint with the Department of Education to investigate Harvard's policy of admitting legacy students. So that is definitely going to get some attention. And you're right. It's a glaring 
loophole in the whole affirmative action debate. I, I would say recruited athletes are also an equally glaring loophole that were not addressed. But I think the difference there is that, you know, whether you are a legacy or whether you are a recruited athlete is not a protected characteristic under the constitution. Like uh. race is a category that requires the courts to be more searching. Legacy status, whether you're in state or out of state, whether you're a recruited athlete, those are not. And so even if those were to be challenged, it's very unlikely. Judge. Judge Murray, darling. But what if my angle as a lawyer, darling, was like, but because legacy admissions were so fucking racialized, like most often, like there are some black legacy admissions, there are some like other, like, you know, Latino, like other races, but like most of them are white because of like the racial... Yeah. Does it have a disparate impact of advantaging white people? Sure. But the Supreme Court has basically made the whole question of whether disparate impact can rise to the level of a constitutional violation really remote. So again, unlikely to be successful. And, you know, there's a lot you could say about legacy admissions. And I think schools would say, you know, a big part of letting legacies in is that they usually pay full freight, which then enables us to redistribute some of that tuition money mm. to kids who can't afford to come here on the full freight tuition or to deploy our resources in other ways to scholarships and whatnot. And so, you know, that's something to think about. I think the Black people in my life have been pretty exercised over this issue because it feels a little bit like gotcha that they are finally in a position where they have gone to some of these elite institutions and are now in a position to pass that legacy status onto their children. And suddenly it's being challenged in the same way that affirmative action has been challenged. That feels a little bit like a gotcha. But you know, I, I think it's very clear that this is a system of perpetuated privilege and for, for lots of different reasons. And there are lots of perpetuated privileges all over the college admissions process. There was just really interesting reporting in the New York Times by David Leonard about the way in which income and wealth play such a surprisingly impactful role in who gets admitted to these elite colleges. And again, all of this is about elite admissions. 70% of students in the country do not go to these schools. And so for the bulk of Americans, this whole issue is entirely moot. Mm. Okay, coming in hot and hard with the nuance, as always, obsessed. Sidebar, <laughs> I do want to do a role play where you're the judge and I'm a lawyer and I get to be like a mock like trial lawyer and j basically just to say like I object and then for you to be like that argument doesn't really like do, do anything. So you sit down. Well, let's do a role play where you're Clarence Thomas and I'm Katanji Brown Jackson. Okay, that actually, ew. First of all, like, how dare? Like, I mean, aside <laughs> from like the obvious cancelable ethical implications of me role playing Clarence Thomas, uh, ew, why does it have to be so conservative? <laughs> like, I mean, what? Like, maybe I could do Jenny. I think I could do a bitch in Jenny. I could be such a conservative villain. My blow dry and my shoulder pads and my chunky, fugly heels and, like, my hose that aren't quite the right color, I would fucking kill it. I would bring a Dolores Umbridge mm. to that role. That's actually probably my breakout scripted role if there wasn't a strike. Is like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to be, like, a trans non-binary Jenny Thomas. Wow! <laughs> 
Okay, anyway. Uh, but I, that I feel like we're going to have to have you on our podcast to role play Jenny when we're like anytime. reading her text messages and stuff. So, okay. Please, I will I will cosplay yeah. her, role play her anytime you need that. me to. Please, okay, I, we're going to hold you to yeah, that. I, please invite me on yesterday. It's like all I've ever wanted with my life. Perfect. So I know, Melissa, we talked last time about how like typically like when there's like a blockbuster docket and they're just, you know, fucking running amok all over the place. They don't do that two years in a row. This year was an exception. <laughs> they did do that two years in a row is next year going hardcore as well do we know what's on next year's merit space docket like what do we have to get excited for next fucking year is it abortion pills is it so jonathan you are exactly right typically the rhythm has been you know barn burner term let's chillax a little bit and like get the heat off of us but this year we saw the court go from overruling Roe versus Wade to like getting in the middle of affirmative action and upending that. And I think next term is going to also be a barn burner of a term. There's a really important Second Amendment case on the docket that's really going to test whether or not the government can limit firearms in particular ways, limit who may own a firearm, including individuals who may have a history of domestic violence. So that's going to be huge. There's a case that may upend the Chevron doctrine, which is a major administrative law doctrine that basically gives administrative agencies broad deference to interpret the statutes that they are charged with executing. So that's a big deal. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of other things. And I think Leah wants to jump in because we just had a major, major development that may also percolate up to the Supreme Court. So in real time this afternoon, we just got some news. So I wasn't necessarily claiming this, but just so you know, Jonathan, the medication abortion prediction you just gave is likely true because as we are recording, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, the one with a very conservative reputation overseeing Texas, just released their decision in the medication abortion case in which they ruled that these anti-abortion doctors are entitled to bring back into effect the restrictions on mifepristone that existed before 2016 and those changes, so before the Biden administration. And so they effectively ordered a judicially ordered nationwide limitation on mifepristone that could jeopardize access to medication abortion nationwide while drug providers and distributors attempt to distribute this. And that case is certainly headed to the Supreme Court. We should say, though, right, there's a stay that the Supreme Court issued that will remain in effect. So this is a very, very, very bad opinion, but it does not mean that immediately there's a change in the status of mifepristone and people's access to it. It will remain widely available until the Supreme Court disposes of this case. It will be up to them. But it's up to these fucking nine justices about whether or not... Now, what does that question hinge on? Is that if it's available state by state? Like, how could that make a nationwide ban? So what they did is they said the Food and Drug Administration, the federal agency, they were incorrect to adopt certain rules regarding medication abortion. And because those rules come from a federal agency, they apply nationwide. And so by undoing those rules... The court's ruling also has an effect nationwide. So even in states that permit abortion, this ruling, if allowed to go into effect, could have huge consequences. Well, it, can we also just say that you know this case is like the Venn diagram of all of the things the conservative supermajority hates, like it's abortion and the administrative state. So this is just like Samuel Alito is going to be absolutely salivating over this case, like the chance to stick it to agencies while also sticking it to abortion access. So basically, would they be saying the FDA, you rushed, because wasn't this whole thing that they rushed the process, they haven't tested it enough? Wasn't that what they said? 
Yeah. So this isn't about the overall approval. It is about whether some additional restrictions on mifepristone's use should be in place. So for example, like whether you can prescribe it by telemedicine or things like that. The Biden administration during the pandemic changed some of the rules to make it more widely available in large part because of the inaccessibility during the pandemic that a lot of communities experienced. And so this is about those changes in the Biden rules. Like, But you're right. In the initial case heard before Judge Matthew Kesmerick, that district court judge in Amarillo, Texas, there was a broader challenge to the FDA's initial ruling approving mifepristone back in the 2000s. I think it was like, what, 2002? Is that right? So, but this new case, this new challenge is going to be at the Supreme Court for next term. We know that. Or we don't know. Basically it's certain. Extremely likely. I, I think yeah. we're pretty certain. And so if they rule against it, that means that, like, no more birth control nationwide or states would have to come in and make a law that says, like, it's okay in our state. Well, this is medication abortion, not birth control, just to make that distinction. Oh, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank thank you, thank you. Yeah, but also, like, it still would be permitted, but there would be additional restrictions on its use. Now, that's formally true. But the problem is, is that these drugs have to be correctly labeled. And if the court were to say, well, actually, all of these new rules and additional restrictions apply, there might be a problem where distributors and manufacturers can't actually use the existing drugs that have the old label that a court would be saying is wrong. And so that could at least lead to a temporary You know, and if you believe the drug manufacturers and distributors, they said potentially months, if not years long, you know, inability to access medication abortion, which is the most common method of abortion in the United States. Great. Um, What are the other cases for next term that we know of? There's a couple of other cases about administrative law questions that sound kind of dry but are so, so important. So one regarding the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is like, you know, an important agency that protects investors and markets and like tries to make the economy work generally. And some anti-government forces are arguing that basically the way the SEC enforces a lot of the laws it is responsible for enforcing, like violates like three different parts of the Constitution and that basically the whole agency is unconstitutional. There is an argument that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is also unconstitutional. Which is what Elizabeth Warren set up. Her baby, her brainchild. Yeah, I was worried about the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act if that board was going to be up next or if that... And the answer is yes. And so that would mean like the whole like Silicon Valley bank that collapsed, like those sorts of things would be happening way more because there'd be even less regulation. And the court may facilitate that. (laughs) Okay, so back to Trump and other old crusty piece of shit. So of the four indictments, you have District of Columbia, New York State, Georgia, and Florida. Doesn't D.C. or potentially Georgia have the chance of like going to trial and having a verdict prior to the election? So he, no. I, D.C., yes, in part because he's the only defendant in that indictment. It's a pretty streamlined indictment. Georgia, no, I think, because it's just such a big indictment and there are so many different players. Like There are 19 defendants, so Trump and 18 others. And then there are also 30 other unindicted co-conspirators who may you know, come into play at some point. So hard to say. That just seems like a much more a much more laborious kind of trial. And we should say, Willis says she, the prosecutor, Fonnie Willis, has said she wants a trial date within six months. So she is certainly going for it. But I totally agree with Melissa that trying, I mean, unless they're going to be severed at the moment, they're all being charged together. They can't all be 
charged as fast as she would like. So unlikely yeah. to happen before DC and maybe not before the election. Like 19 defendants, 19 different lawyers, 19 yeah. sets of motions. Like it's, it's a lot. And like Mark Meadows is already like yeah. motioning to have his move to like mm-hmm. federal court. Cause he says it was like part of his like duties from whatever. You know, who was texting Mark Meadows about this? Ginny Thomas. <laughs> part of my job. It was When you come on our pod, we'll talk more about it. This will, this will be part of your role. But I was also reading this opinion piece, I think, in the Wall Street Journal that said that, like, the 14th Amendment says that anyone who aided or abetted, like, insurrectionists, like, is barred from running for state or federal office. But, like, who's in charge of that? And could it be up to, like, state's attorneys generals to say you're barred? Or secretary of state, rather. Yeah, you're asking all – you really should be a lawyer. Not, I mean, you, you've done great in all these other spheres. But I'm just saying if you ever want to go to law school, you will dominate. Well, I was just reading yeah, but, about it. I was just yeah, reading about I it. Mean, yes, that's in the 14th Amendment. The question, But the big question is who enforces the prohibition on serving in public office for individuals who engaged in rebellion or insurrection? I think there is an argument that a single secretary of state could basically decide they have the authority to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and prevent – Trump from being on the ballot in their state. And that, I think, would force the issue up to this Supreme Court, which takes us back to the recurring problem of this conversation, which is it all comes back to this Supreme Court. Now, what if the Secretary of State sued the state Supreme Court? Because like this is like a... Con- or, or, but that would have to be in the state constitution, that yeah. same provision yeah. about insurrectionists, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think it would be, presumably the Trump campaign would challenge a decision by the Secretary of State to keep him off the ballot and the issue would be filed in federal court. And it's a, you know, there's nothing that prevents a state court from passing on it, but ultimately it's the federal constitution that has the prohibition and the United States Supreme Court would ultimately answer the question of whether he can be disqualified. But I don't know if, in theory, like, he doesn't even need a conviction. Like, in theory, a secretary of state could try to keep him off just because they make the determination that he has engaged in disqualifying conduct. But then his campaign would most certainly sue and that would immediately go to the Supreme Court and then that would lay that out really quick if he's allowed to run or not. I think that's right. From a 14th Amendment perspective. But then if he gets convicted in D.C. by next year and he's a convicted felon, then you can't run for federal office as a convicted felon, right? You just can't vote for yourself, but... (laughs) Oh. The general understanding is the only things the Constitution really requires if you're going to be qualified to run for president are you got to be 35 and natural-born citizen. So there's really... He's going to run and... He's going to be their nominee. Is that our verdict, our prediction? They seem to really love him. I, I feel like all of the other people in this field are running to be his vice president. I'm scared of that Vivek, honey. He is really intense. Oh, Vivek, yeah, Ramaswani. I read an article about him that said he was Trump squared. Anybody who gets the title of Trump it squared, did. I'm running the other way. It's a chunky heel day. I went to college with him. That's another Yale Law School product. You did not! You saw him in your classes or just like you loosely heard about him? Or you like literally had to do a project with him? I mean, we were both in some of the like political-ish circles. So I like ran into him. I didn't know him by like any means. Was he just like openly talking about raging conservative ideologies back then? Would he just be like, fucking gays? Or no? No. So kept it more close to the vest. He was more of a uh, the guy who shot Hamilton. He was more of a Burr. Aaron Burr. Politician. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> just you wait. <laughs> like we'll find yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody, yeah, I was so scared. Okay, uh, great. So okay, so this fall we're launching a new series <laughs> called Curious Now, which you were all invited on. We need to be like our co-anchors that like come on to talk to us about constitutional things. And one goal of Curious Now is to keep our listeners up to date with LGBTQIA plus rights and legislation. What are some of the LGBTQIA plus rights cases y'all are following? There's just a lot uh, to keep, especially on the state level. But what are you guys looking at? We have highlighted before, this is just a district court case, but a really important win out of Tennessee that struck down Tennessee's like first in the nation horrendous drag ban. And that was successfully challenged on First Amendment grounds. So we talked about it a bunch when that came down. And that's kind of a, you know, model challenge for other awful similar copycat legislation being considered other places. So that was a rare spot of really good litigation news. But the Fifth Circuit could rule differently if Texas does, because they were going to like tax drag queens here more. They were like doing all sorts of like potential things. I don't think that that, I think they ended up not passing that stuff this year or on this term, but they were still talking about it. But is the First Circuit even Sixth more, circuit, or, yeah. and it's Tennessee, so that's probably pretty conservative. It's pretty conservative. It's Sixth Circuit. Very conservative. Yeah. You're right, Jonathan. Like, I mean, there has been a spate of LGBTQIA unfriendly legislation around the country over the last two years. And the anti-trans legislation is is obviously the sort of locus of this, at least 20 states since, like, I, I guess of this year, at least 20 states, if I'm, I'm thinking of the research I did, have banned at least some kinds of medical care for transgender children. And again, it's a lot of this is being done on the view that it is quote unquote child abuse to allow children to have this kind of gender affirming care. So, you know, one thing that's going on is we're refashioning existing child abuse laws to reach these kinds of practices. And then we're also passing affirmatively anti-trans laws to prevent this in the first place. So that's going on. But there have been some glimmers of hope. An Arkansas district court imposed a permanent ban on that state's anti-trans legislation that would have prevented children from getting gender affirming care. So, you know, that's an important victory in that state. But there's assault after assault after assault on all of these things. And so we're just, everyone's just sort of fighting on all fronts at this point. Yeah. And Sixth Circuit actually allowed the states in the Sixth Circuit to enforce their laws prohibiting gender affirming care. So just as we were thinking about like what that court might do on the drag bans, like that's what they did in this other area where all of the district courts that have decided the issue had decided that prohibiting gender affirming care was unconstitutional. And you had a conservative, you know, court of appeals saying, actually, it's not. And so that's a risk there. And I think, you know, we are going to see the trial of Kim Davis, who refused to issue marriage licenses to same sex couples after Obergefell versus Hodges. That's going to be happening in the fall. And I think that is going to be part of a broader trend and category of cases where people are seeking exemptions from civil rights statutes and rights that the LGBTQ community has right now. What about Florida? Don't say gay. My little book, Peanut Goes for the Gold, they were attempting to ban it in St. John's County, Florida. I also just would be remiss if we didn't mention this, because I know I talk about it all the time, but when it comes to gender-affirming care, Alicia Roth-Weigel, she's coming on Curious Now. She'll actually be our first guest on Curious Now. Her book, Inverse Cowgirl, is coming out, but she's a huge, amazing activist. She's an intersex activist. I love her. She's from Texas. But I think it's just really important that we 
say that all of these anti-trans children care laws that say that, you know, gender affirming care for kids is child abuse is in those same places. There is a carve out for intersex kids. So when a child is born with intersex characteristics, which affects up to 2% of the population, like even biological sex is not a binary because intersex people do exist in the millions. And these laws specifically carve out intersex kids to have permanent medical decisions on babies to keep the gender binary functioning as is. So anyway, last thing, this is going to be really fun. Well, second to last things, just to be clear, don't want to make false promises. Last episode, we did an epic fuck, Mary kill with pop culture legal cases. What's our new one to end on for pop culture trials, or it could be like historic trials as well. Like I need a win, like for our Mary. I'm like honestly waiting for this Prince Harry versus the tabloid situation. And I I think when Meghan Markle won against the Daily Mail, that was epic. Okay, but can I just say like that speaks to like the desolate fucking desperate times that we're in that we have to look all the way to fucking England for a place where we're fucking winning, okay? That's not a good goddamn sign because it's not going that well over there either, you guys. I'm nervous. Should we start a scholar commune where you guys are the constitutional experts? I'm the wannabe one who does nice haircuts, blow dries. I'll give you hand massages. I... I'll make food. Like, I do have five cats and a husband and three dogs. What are our cases, Erica? Do we actually have some prepared or is this part of the question that we need to, like, literally source them ourselves? Or should we fuck, Mary kill, like... But justices. Yes, justices. I'm not doing that one. Yes, you are. (laughs) I opt out of this experience. (laughs) I think that's, like, really hard, but I think that we should... Leah, if you really want to, like, I think you should see how open we're about to be. And then if you feel like matching our vulnerability, you're welcome to, but no pressure because, like, this is an open place. Can I just say, I was really excited to nominate my case, which was the Taylor Swift counterclaim for a dollar for assault. Like, that's a great case. That's good. That's definitely the one to marry. Yeah. It's just so easy. Like everyone. Yeah, I, I, I do think the justices is like it, it's hard. I think it's kind of a win, Melissa. I think you're right. I I'll go first. I'm gonna put myself out there. Fuck Mary Kill, Supreme Court justices of all time. Obviously, going to marry Thurgood Marshall, stunning, gorgeous, really attracted. I am curious about if he was tall, but even if he was a short king, I'm still here for him. <laughs> I feel like the movie I was like into hit like whoever, like I'm into it. I'm here for it. Yes. Mary. I also feel like we would have some like good ass, like long, even though I'm pretty sure he was straight, but like in my, or maybe I would have been like a cishet lady, whatever. I just feel like our chemistry would have been hardcore, like in the public bathrooms, like, oh my God, like the justice gets in trouble. Cause like, I was like diddling him in the bathroom, like, oh my God. But like we come out and it's like just impossibly fresh and like, no, we weren't. What do you mean? So I'm definitely marrying him. I'm fucking, I'm definitely probably bottoming for Roberts and a sauna at the YMCA. It's probably like, probably bottoming for, and he's probably like not into kissing, but like his Adam's apple, I'm just like, oh, okay. Like let's do role play. Like I feel sad, but like you're going to use me and like, but it was okay. Just like for a quick, like breed me undetectable equals untransmittable. Like you, like it's fine. Like I just closed my HIV status. Like just fuck me. You know what I'm saying? Like you're in a bottoming, like you're a top. It's going to be fine. Killing, I'm probably definitely killing 
should it be someone who's already dead? I want the FBI to come. <laughs> yeah, for me. yeah, I might yeah, go yeah, with yeah. someone who's um, already dead like, here. They take they take this stuff yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Already dead. Yeah, they're Definitely. they're already dead. Who is like a nightmare dead justice? Who like was there like a teapot dome justice or like a really racist justice? Who was like a racist justice who ruled wrong? Roger Tawney. On- Roger Tawney. I think we're is all gonna the, pick Roger yeah. Tawney. Yeah. Yeah, he's the author of Dread Scott. Said black people could never be citizens. Yeah, I also did have an intrusive thought that's much worse than that, which we are not going to say. <laughs> Miss Murray, I'm going to need you to fucking just quickly. You don't have to explain it too much, but like anyone, I mean, I think we're at time, and I, I don't know if I can ever top <laughs> this. That was like really mortifying. <laughs> like why? No, because like no, because like John Roberts just like fictitiously fucked me in public. So I think Benjamin oh, Cardozo was kind of nice. I think cool. he was kind of cute. I'm going to go with Benjamin Cardozo, and I think I would marry yeah. KBJ. I don't think there's. Any I, I was about to say, I if you marry KBJ, I marry, KBJ, KBJ. I I marry Elena Kagan. Maybe fuck William Brennan, right? Like he oh, seems to have some good ideas. Oh, he would know what he um, was and doing. A snack. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And then and then kill James McReynolds. Yeah. Those four horsemen. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like loved our FBI catch. That was great. I wonder if the FBI is gonna come for me for like me saying I wanted John Roberts to breed me at NYMCA. Like that's probably an equal offense for him. But I I, I don't know that that's like a threat. So, you know. To him it is. It probably is, you know. (laughs) Hide your kids, hide your wife, Justice Roberts, because my fucking Hole is coming for you. I've had it with being oppressed. So I love you guys so much. <laughs> Final question. What's next for all of you and for strict scrutiny? And also if you wanted to like 1A, 1B, because we did ask Melissa last time about like her journey on becoming a constitutional law scholar slash icon, <laughs> like for like women and like women plus non-binary queer people, like marginalized groups who want to become like a fucking constitutional goddamn lawyer. Like any advice? How did you get here? Is it a dumpster fire and we should leave already? Is it too late to be saved? What's next for strict scrutiny? Yes! How did you guys become icons, Leah? Leah? Kate? No, we're just icon adjacent. Or at least I won't speak for you, Leah. I consider myself merely icon adjacent. And uh, surround yourself with brilliant fucking ladies and um, ones you can vent constructively with. Basically be the Supreme Court minority, right? Find yourself... Two other ladies who are dope and hang out with them. And then just dissent, dissent, dissent repeatedly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Know that it's a long dissent. game. It's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. Go listen to Strict Scrutiny, guys. Uh, get smarter over there with these fucking amazing ladies. I am so obsessed with you guys. Thanks for coming on Getting Curious. I love you guys so much. Any final thoughts or do you feel complete? You complete us. Don't threaten me with a good time. If you ever want to have me on Strict Scrutiny, I'll come. Oh, we totally yesterday. will have you on. I yes. will be your We'd love to have you on. I love you guys so much. Yeah, Getting Curious. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guests and their areas of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousJBN. Yes. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our editor is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Chris McClure, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Samantha Martinez. <laughs>